as a fiction writer, I always want to have all my characters feel rich and full, and I do think he feels rich and full. But it's the first time that I've had a character who is pretty unredeemable. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. This is Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. My guest today is Jamie Attenberg, New York Times bestselling author of seven novels, including The Middlesteens. Her latest book, All This Could Be Yours, is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. The story is set in New Orleans and chronicles a family reuniting at the deathbed of its patriarch, Victor Tuckman. This week, the New York Times described All This Could Be Yours as a very good book about a very bad man. Jamie Attenberg has been called the poet laureate of difficult families. She lives in New Orleans and is on national book tour. Jamie, welcome to the program. Hi. All This Could Be Yours is an emotionally raw and hilarious novel. We meet the Tuckman family. The parents are Victor and Barbara. They've relocated to New Orleans. And I mentioned in the intro that you live in New Orleans and have recently relocated from New York. My question is, when you began writing the story, what came first to you, the setting or an individual voice? I really wanted to write a book that was set in New Orleans, and it taken me a couple years to get to the place where I thought that I could. But the first thing that I heard was uh, a character's voice. And that character was Robin, who is the daughter of Victor Tuckman, who is the very bad man who is in a is in a coma at that moment in the book. And, and what I heard was a woman sitting on the roof of a hotel, and she's talking about her family. And she's talking about a dying family member who she doesn't like very much. And I saw that. And I saw that her her mother was the keeper of some secrets that the the woman wanted to know. And I saw uh, a family member, in this case, it's a sister-in-law, but a family member who wasn't that in, interested or invested in, necessarily in the conversation. And that was all in, in two paragraphs, but it was really Alex's voice that I heard first. And there was the stakes were already really high for the book, just just in that story. It was very juicy already. And New Orleans is really a character in the novel. It's You've managed to capture the heat and plant life and architecture. Did you feel it sort of natural or was it kind of intimidating writing about the city? I mean, I was intimidated. I really, I think I was waiting for somebody to give me permission to write about the city. It's a very special place. It's small. It is beloved. There's a lot of struggle and controversy there. It's a very American place. People come from all over America to be there, even though it's it's singular to, you know, it's not like any other city in the U.S. And I, you know, being new there, I mean, I had an impression of it. I had an understanding of it, but I didn't know if I could really capture the entire, and I don't capture the entire city. I capture, you know, as much of the city as I could or, or wanted to, needed to for this book. But I was definitely intimidated writing about it. And then I just realized that nobody else was going to give me permission but me. And that's the way it works with all all books and all art really is that we we're the one we're the ones who tell ourselves to go. The structure is pretty ambitious. You have a cast of, a huge cast of characters and there I think I counted four generations of voices including a couple of characters that come come into the story that are outside the orbit of the Tuckman family. For you, who is the grounding character? 
Oh, that's a good question. I guess Alex is the one who is most stable. I don't know if any of them are really like that stable, but I think because she showed up first, so she introduced me to all the other characters. She was my way in, so she's probably the, the grounding character, I guess. But, you know, everybody's so messed up. <laughs> you know, Jamie, for me, the grounding character in the story is Barbara. And I think it's because, you know, she's the mother she is willing to keep Victor Tuckman's secrets. She wants material things in life. And she uses this device, the Fitbit, to track her steps and to stay thin and pretty. And there's this wonderful moment of confrontation with her and her daughter, Alex. Alex wants to know all of Victor's secrets. And she says, Barbara says, there's a fuzziness to life that you with your sharp legal mind have never been able to comprehend. So can you talk a little bit about creating Barbara and what we can understand about complicit silent mothers? So I was I was definitely interested in this this complicit white middle slash upper class woman. And Barbara showed up, but I also knew who she was and what she represented to me. And I just want to say also that, like, whatever my political opinions are, my books don't work unless the characters work. I'm a character-driven writer. So um, she, so, and, and I hopefully create books that speak to people in different ways. I had, you know, a lot of problems with Barbara. She, to me, is the anti-hero of the book. Uh, one of the reasons why we have a bad man who's in a coma is I didn't really want to investigate him and turn him into the anti-hero because I think we do enough of that in our contemporary culture. In film and television and books and ev- everywhere. So I I was more interested in her um, and trying to figure out why she was the way she was and, and again, why she, why she stayed with him. I really just want people to read it and have their own opinions about it. It almost doesn't matter what I think. I think I ultimately, I tried really hard to write my way into a compassion, compassionate place with her. But I, it depends on what day you talk to me. Sometimes I like her, sometimes I don't. Or sometimes I f- am forgiving of her and sometimes I'm not. She is the character, I think, that most people say they don't necessarily identify with her, but they know someone just like her. They have a step, oh, that's my stepmother, or oh, that's my aunt, or whatever. Absolutely. She's easy to relate to. We all know somebody like Barbara. But the fact that you've created this tapestry of characters that includes four generations, it allows us to kind of see the trauma in Alex and then in, in, the, in the grandchildren. And it fascinates me that she didn't really want to have children. She really, she did this for her husband. It was a, yeah, it's generational. It was like what she felt like she was supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in the impact of this person, this, this Victor. I'm not interested in him, but I'm interested in what he does, how it impacts people how it impacts the generations of women. It's primarily female characters in this book, but there are some male characters in this book too, and his son Gary is in it, and it impacts the men too. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is that there's adolescent trauma coming through in all of the characters in you. The the backstory is woven in just brilliantly. And so I I was felt when I was reading this, there's really a powerful psychological portrait of disorder and recovery. I mean... As you said, these characters are really messed up. Some confront the beast and others kind of check out. There's a raw emotional scene in the hospital where Alex is sitting next to her, her father who's dying. He's unconscious. She's trying to do the work of forgiveness and the goodbye. Her brother is checked out. He's not there. Um, Yeah, I understand Gary more than (laughs) I understand Alex. You understand Gary more than... I understand. Like, I'd be the person that, like, you know, Gary's on the... He's in California for work. 
and he's sort of he's like sitting in an Airbnb getting stoned, and he just keeps missing the flight to go see his yeah. father. And I'm he like, yeah, go- that's probably what I would do. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I don't smoke pot. I identified w- with uh, with that kind of that that sort of wanting to check out, wanting to, wanting to, I think at some point he says that, that he wants to sit this one out. He wants to sit this one out. Yeah. And then there's Alex who really wants to get, get past all of this rage it's and she wants to purge and she wants to know the secrets and she's sort of forgiving her father and also holding him accountable. So I'm sitting there reading the book, grabbing tissues and then I'm laughing so when you're writing this, do you you have a kind of comic remove from these really tragic moments? I do take some steps back because I just think if you wait long enough, everything gets funny. And maybe that's the family that I'm from and or maybe that's just my, you know, I, I don't think I invented that. I'm sure I got that from my family. I don't know. I think it's like a safe place for me. I think that at this point, because I've written so many books that the reader knows to expect that from me, that, that, that oh, I mean, if you're one of my regular readers, not that there's that many of you, but if you're out there that you sort of can expect that I'm you're in kind of in safe hands with me and that I'm always going to throw a joke in there. I mean, I think tonally it's correct. I don't think I like I'm mocking any kind of situation, but I just really see the humor and so like in, in every crevice and every corner. Let me ask you about that. I, you have written books. You do have a following. Have we gotten to the point where you can go to a public reading and people aren't standing up saying, is this your family? Is this you? Um, is are you are you just this big hot mess? Or have have your readers kind of come to understand that you're really more of a. You, you really chronicle dysfunctional families in general, that there's nothing so, so personal. I, mean, I don't know. I feel like I always have to say it anyway, because you're all, there's always new people around who don't, know, who don't know me, or this is the first time they've ever heard of me, or they've only read my last book in this book, or, you know, or they've only read St. Maisie, which is historical fiction, right? So I don't have any expe- expectations of it, but I don't mind saying that in defense of my family that my family is very nice and we all get along and everything is, I mean, it's not a perfect family. No family is perfect, but I don't mind saying that just to put a, put a mind, a mind at ease if they're, if they're curious, but it would have to be, I mean, I just don't think I'm any of these, I don't think I represent or, or, you know, well, I'm sitting or across appear, a, appear as any of these characters. I'm sitting across the <laughs> table from you. You don't seem like you're the kind yeah. of character in this book. But um, it's and it's funny when I mentioned to somebody that you were going to be on the program. I'm kind of confused the the tag that you've been given. You've been called poet laureate of difficult families, and I kept saying, "Oh, she's the patron saint of narcissists or patron saint of difficult families," and which is wrong. But in a way, that kind of fits for me. And I will take anything that anyone wants to call me. I will take. All right, any I'm title. tagging it. I'm tagging. I'll it. take any. I think somebody else <laughs> called me that, and some and some other thing too. And then and then there was like some. Well, it's just amazing the way it works. Like these trade because that was a Kirkus review, and all these trade publications have, they set the tone, right? Because people t- like a lot of reviewers or people who make lists for magazines or things like that yes. don't have time to read all the books. So they so that's why Kirkus and um, Publishers Weekly and things like that are, are are really quite helpful to them because they've already done all the work for you or have done a lot of the reading anyway. And so once that happened, it was like every review that I was getting was like, she's the queen of dysfunctional families. And I was like, fantastic. I will take it. Like whatever you guys want to because I've never, you know, there are like imaginary titles, but I've never had, I've never won an award or anything like that. So I was like, this is maybe the only way I'll ever get a title. In my well, it's a life. pretty good one. And <laughs> and that reminds me that you had another really amazing review in 
Entertainment Weekly. I think the title of the article was Dysfunction Junction, and they called you a master of modern fiction. And there's a passage we're going to get to in a couple of minutes that really illustrates um, your mastery. But I think the reason I called you the patron saint of of dysfunctional families is because I felt that there's just such a, an empathy that, that we're left with after reading these really weird, wild characters. And there's one I want to ask you about. There's, there's a character named Twyla, and there's a scene at CVS. And anyone who reads this book, you will not be able to forget this scene. And Twyla's married to Gary, who is Victor's son, and she's kind of a Southern belle. There's a scene with a cartload of makeup and lipstick is kind of Twyla's armor, I came to think of it. Makes her feel strong. And she's buying all this makeup and lipstick. She goes to the cashier, and the cashier makes a comment, and she melts down. So my question is, how do you, how do you walk that dance between strength and fragility when you're building a character? That's the thing. It's all, there's not, in a way, there's not really any surprises in in any story. I mean, it's hard to create surprises in stories. It's like putting a guy in a coma. Either he's going to wake up or he's going to die. Those are the two choices. If you put a woman in, in the middle of a CVS and she's filling her cart up frantically with every available pink thing that she can find, she either is going to walk out looking like a child with like, you know, who's done all of her own makeup or she's going to have a, a meltdown. It's so not it going to end well. It's not going to end well is what we're saying. Um, so I don't know. You just create these scenarios and then you write towards the ending. I mean, I was just thinking about how I didn't really want her to – I didn't really think she was going to buy everything. And then I thought, someone's going to have to put that all back. That was what I – those were the two things. Is like when you buy all these things, if you fill your cart with things that you don't want, who puts them back? I want to walk through that one carefully because it unfolds so beautifully and it's so funny. There's a conflict inherent in that, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And so it's really the job of the writer to figure, to create these scenarios in their head that are – that have an inherent conflict and then figure – and then write their way into resolving them. Right. Well, you say it like it's easy to do, but you have a natural <laughs> you have a natural unfolding in your characters. And again, I think that's why you've been called a master. You've you've gotten to a point where you know how to take a character through all the range of emotions and it and it does feel very natural. I mean, Twyla's having she's she's feeling empowered and she's on the the verge of a meltdown. So it's it's just a, it's a scene that unfolds it's really very, beautifully. It's, it's very nice of you to say. I mean, it is the thing that I love to do. And I like it's a my writing is very much a playground for me. So, yeah. And OK, so here's another thing that occurred to me. And again, everyone is going to pull something different from this book. It's a big book with a lot of characters and it moves at lightning speed. But I really was obsessed with this scene that takes place in an arboretum. And so you managed to do a lot of things in just a couple of paragraphs. First of all, I'm curious about how you learned about a plant. I've never heard of this plant, a pitcher plant bog. And there's a really touching and offen- offensive moment between Victor and his granddaughter. So I wonder if you can talk about this intergenerational moment. I felt like we could really see kind of the kindness and cruelty as it comes through nature. So it was that I went to, there's a blueberry farm that's in Mississippi, that is really good for picking blueberries um, once, you know, for a couple weeks every summer. And I was going blueberry picking with someone, and we stopped at this arboretum to go see it. And in I was Mississippi. In, in Mississippi. And I was in the middle of 
writing this book. And I already knew who all the characters were at that point. Like, I think this happens halfway through the book or something like that, the scene that we're talking about. And so I, it didn't, I was already, everything was already alive in my head. And so anywhere that I went in the region or in the city was a potential place to put my characters. And so I went to this arboretum and there was, it's an actual arboretum where there's a pitcher bog and there's these frogs that crawl over each other that I've never seen frogs be crazy because they're usually very chill animals and they were fighting each other for these, you know, it's like we turned them into you know, somehow we've turned them into monsters in this beautiful arboretum, in this beautiful park. <laughs> and so it was like walking through it and just and like every it was so strange because every single thing that happened in that park was just like blinking at me loudly, like, take me for your book, take me for your book. And so then all I had to do was just, you know, and I didn't know what a picture bog, you know, picture bog was They're They're kind of oh, kind of like being this fly trappish. That's what it seemed like. Kind of kind of an aggressive plant. Yeah. And there and there was just a whole you know, landscape full of them in, in this park. So when you're when you get to the when you've figured out who your characters are, you can put them anywhere you want them, right? I don't teach much, but um, I do like to tell some of my students that I, it's a good idea to just to send your characters down the street to a corner store to get a pack of cigarettes and think about why they're getting the cigarettes and think about their interaction. And but it's just any kind of I mean, that's just like a great la- landscape, any kind of landscape that seems cool and weird once you know your characters anything can happen in that and so this was like a very spectacularly weird park with the with the fighting frogs and the pitcher bog and um and I just was like oh this is going definitely going in the book and and who do, how do I put in how how do I just who wants to go really it was like who wants to go to the park and then my character one you know my character stepped up yeah, I think it's one of those moments that um, allows everything to come together. I wonder if we can have you read just a quick passage in the book. And again, this is a scene that takes place at an arboretum in Mississippi. And if you don't mind, Jamie, why don't you read a little a couple paragraphs and then we'll touch up on it again. And Twyla's daughter's name is Avery, I should say. Once the three of them went together to an arboretum in Mississippi and fed turtles in a pond that crawled all over one another in competition for the tiny pellets of food they received in a plastic bag with their admission fee, and Avery loved it. She'd never seen turtles behave that way, and Victor enjoyed the fish that snuck in and stole the pellets away from the turtles, and Twyla admired the surrounding trees' exact reflection in the water, as if there were an alternate universe version of the trees. If only she could get there, she bet she'd like it. Later, they wandered into a pitcher plant bog, green and serene and vaguely threatening grass and wildflowers mixed with white-tipped pitcher plants. Avery explained that they were full of a powerful nectar that trapped bugs and slowly dissolved them. And Avery said she liked them because they grew in all kinds of soil, even bad soil where other plants couldn't. And Victor was impressed with them because they were carnivorous, sneaky little bastards, he said admiringly. And then everyone was quiet, the arboretum empty of people except for the three of them. Victor's words had sounded cruel in comparison. Everyone knew it. Victor coughed, and then Avery said sagely, It's okay, Grandpa. People can like the same thing for two different reasons. And Twyla thought she's a good, smart child, and I love her. I love that passage. It's like very, it was very fun to write because I was like, What are we doing here? Like, who's going to, I mean, it's, a, oh, it's, I, I think I had even more to it, and I like dialed it back because it was too on the nose, but like, you know, everyone shows who they are. Well, they do. And did you feel that Victor was able to relate to his granddaughter much? More easily than his own children. I thought they got along. I don't know if they had very much in common, but I thought that they 
they complemented each other. They did. And what I found fascinating about Victor is that he was always digging for information from Avery when she when she got fascinated by whether it was a rodent or these destructive nutria, uh, the nutria, which I it's like a rodent, right? Yeah. I had to look that up. I hadn't heard of that. Disgusting. (laughs) So that's a a local animal that lives in the swamplands. Yeah. And then we have this plant life. And Victor really wants to know about the sort of nefarious characteristics of these things, almost as if he wanted to apply them to how he could become a worse human being. (laughs) That's how I read it anyway. He's digging for information, not out of a scholarly sort of curiosity, but... I would say that maybe that that he his he does have a, if I'm going to give him one compliment, it is that he does have a curiosity for life. He does, I mean, he's not an intellectual at all, but he does want to, he does information is valuable to him. We we learn about Victor's secrets um, toward the end. Of, well, there's there they unfold throughout the story, but we learn a lot at the end, which we're not going to discuss. But was it always your intent? to have a conversation through the characters about Victor without allowing him much say. Yeah, I mean, even that he shows up at the very beginning was really a stretch for me. I just wasn't, I didn't want him to be able to defend himself or explain himself. And to be clear, he is unconscious throughout the entire book. I don't really care. I mean, I care about him. Like, I enjoyed writing him, but I don't really care. I I didn't want him to be the antihero. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I really wanted... I just think we know enough already. Like we've heard from these, he, you know, he, he is his own being and his own character, but he also represents many, many terrible men out there. And I think we get it. Did you do a draft with Victor's voice and then cut no. it? It never happened. It was just those first two pages. He, you see yep. him and that's it. No. And I, and that was like in the fourth draft, I finally like let him show up. It's like, there's not any excuse that they can give for the, for their be- behavior. Even if they have one, it doesn't. It just doesn't matter to me anymore. He hasn't earned the right to have the voice. No, he's terrible. <laughs> he's he is, like, no, no, he is terrible. It's just a weird thing because I, I think about this all the time because I, and I, I did struggle with the, with the fact that I, as a fiction writer, I always want to have all my characters feel rich and full. And I do think he feels rich and full. But it's the first time that I've had a character who is pretty unredeemable because I do, because this thread of compassion is, is, is consistent throughout my work. I'm always trying to have, have that. I'm always trying to find like a little bit, because I do think I do find it with Barbara. And with him, I was like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't. So I, that was the thing I had to give myself permission to, to do is to not find the compassion in him. But I, I tried, I tried. I have, there's some things in there that I think that you get a hint of like where he came from and why he is the way he is. But again, the point is that it, it actually doesn't really matter how he is. I I think that's fair. And as you were writing this, was there a character that was easier to write or more difficult to write? I mean, I th- Alex was like my entry point, so she was pretty easy to write. Twyla was very fun to write. There are a couple of characters that appear in the book that are unrelated to the Tuckman family. Yeah, there's a bunch. Yeah. Like tertiary characters. Yes. And creates kind of like this big kaleidoscope. Is that Was that sort of your intent to round out the New Orleans feel? I knew that I was going to write from, I, have, I had three or four characters that I knew I was going to write from their perspective at the beginning. And I thought I was just going to do like a straight, like every character was going to have like 10,000 word chapters. And I was going to 
alternate from everybody's perspectives. And the minute I started writing the book, all of these tertiary characters just popped right up. And it was they're they're both they're both a device because they allow me to take a step back from the scene and sometimes they're funny and and it sort of it allows me to take a step back and let somebody else see, show us what the you know the main characters look like and uh, have an interaction with them. But then beyond that, uh, and, but they beyond that, yes, they are, you know, a lot of them are native New Orleanian or Louisiana characters who are kind of popping up. And I don't want to say they rounded out, but they just, they really insisted that they be heard and that I couldn't set a book there without them. And so uh, there was some push and pull to make sure that they existed for a reason or that I gave them enough, as, as much life as I could. But in the initial drafts, they were just, they were all a lot shorter. And then as time went on, I, I just kept adding more and more to them. And um, you know, they sort of operate as little pieces of flash fiction too. Do you know what you're working on next? Or are you, do you like talking about what you're working on next? I'm trying, I have a proposal for an essay collection. Really? And I have, and then I'll have a novel attached to that. So I haven't written the novel yet. Or And I have like a couple novel ideas, but I have been working on an essay collection that's a mix of things that I've previously published and new material that's basically set in through my 40s. That's fascinating. And um, I don't think we mentioned in the intro, but you have contributed a number of essays to New York Times, Wall Street Journal. So those are the types of essays that you may have included in your new collection. Yes. Wonderful. A couple last questions. Do you have any advice for families to endure the holidays as we're coming (laughs) This is going to broadcast shortly before Thanksgiving, and then we have the uh, December (laughs) holidays. Lots of family time. I don't know. Don't don't check out. I mean, check out if you need to, but like, don't. I think I fear that so many people are just looking at their phones rather than dealing with it. And it's actually okay to like talk to people and communicate and not fight. Don't drink too much. Eat as much as you want, but don't drink too much because that's when the real raw, inappropriate. Maybe not quite true emotions come out. I don't know. I don't spend Thanksgiving with my families anymore, my family members anymore. So I might not Which be the one. Which is astonishing because there are so many Thanksgiving scenes in your stories. I'm the Gary. <laughs> you are the Gary. I moved to New Orleans. I oh, haven't done Thanksgiving. Okay, now it's all clear. Jamie is the character <laughs> Gary who checks out in the book. No, no, I no, hang out with my family, but Thanksgiving, it's like. Who likes to travel during the holidays? Given your tour schedule, I think everyone will forgive you if you yeah. take a little break during the Thanksgiving holiday. I feel like it's better to see people when you want to see them rather than when you're supposed to see them. It's an emotion-laden holiday. It's perhaps best to just go on a random weekend. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I like that. Jamie Attenberg has been my guest today. Her novel, All This Could Be Yours, is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. She is on a busy book tour in the U.S., you can find more about Jamie and her events on her website. Is that jamieattenberg.com? Mm-hmm. Oh, but, you, you know, Twitter. Twitter's kind of the best way Twitter to track me down. Same, Jamie Attenberg, yeah. Jamie Attenberg and on Twitter. So, Jamie, thank you so much for coming to the program today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. We're on Wednesdays at noon on WERA, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. Thank you.